All right. Well, good morning again. Good morning back there. Good to see you guys. I hope you had a delightful Thanksgiving. Uh, hopefully, you're not still in a food coma. We'll find out. Give me about 25 minutes. So, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 3 this morning. Um, before we go anywhere else, we're going to stop and pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for time to come together to worship your holy name, God. We, uh, we find even in these songs, God, your truth is uh, present, it is evident, and God, we find so much to be thankful for, God, that you have indeed opened our eyes, that we would know you, we would know your son, and we would be able to recognize your work in our lives, and God, that we can look forward to something far greater than what we have right now. God, it is with great joy that we get to open up your word and we get to see your story of how you've loved us. God, I, I pray that as we take this gratitude, take this joy that you have opened our eyes, God, that we would take that same uh, truth that you've brought to us and we would just be zealous to see that all see what your son has done. God, I pray for our hearts that we would just be prepared to hear whatever it is that you have to say to us this morning. Um, and God, that you would just make things abundantly clear uh, through your spirit this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going uh, to be in John chapter 3, fourth book of the New Testament. And so I'm going to invite you to turn there. Uh, we're going to jump around a little bit. So once you turn there, stick a, a finger, a pen, a pencil, a sticky note, something in there. And then you're going to turn all the way back to the fourth book of the Old Testament. You're going to end up in Numbers. So stick a finger in John 3, turn the page to, John, or to Numbers 21. We're going to jump around a little bit and... I think most of us probably could say that we've had at least some part of John chapter 3 memorized, but I'm still going to encourage you, you're going to want that text with you today. Um, and so, hopefully, you found John 3, and while you're turning to Numbers 21, let me give you the context for where we're at within that. And so, we found Israel has uh, been to Sinai, they've, they've gotten the covenant, they've gotten the Old Testament law from, from God, and they have since been wandering and broken that covenant not just once, but we're, we're at this point in uh, numbers up to five-ish times. Uh, and so they have been wandering, and the generation that was at Sinai, because they broke that covenant, is told they are not going to enter the promised land. And so we find Israel in numbers wandering the wilderness. And, and what we're going to find where we pick up in Numbers 21 is that they are heading back towards the Red Sea, to get around the nation of Edom, to get to the promised land. And if you know anything about the history of, of Israel, you know that the Red Sea is kind of where they started. So if you're an Israelite, you might be sitting there scratching your head. But nonetheless, in summation, we have this generation of Israelites. They are stuck wandering the wilderness, following the lead of their God. For some of us, it kind of sounds like a dream come true here out in the middle of nowhere. You're living off the land. You don't have any neighbors other than the people you actually know. And you just get to eat the food that God provides and follow him, hopefully faithfully. Most of us, that might even be on your Facebook bio, like things that I enjoy, like that might be it. That might be you. But Israel is not going to be enjoying that reality here. When we arrive at Numbers 21, the Israelites are not experiencing a lot of joy. They are tired and impatient, and, and I think the appropriate word is they are grumpy. And so all the while they've been in the wilderness, remember they have uh, been brought out of slavery from Egypt by God through this great act of the parting of the Red Sea. God has provided for them the entire time they've been in the wilderness, even when they have sinned against him. 
God has led them, God has fed them, and he's even made water come out of a rock because they asked for it. Nonetheless, the people are impatient. Numbers 21, verses 4 and 5. Let's start there. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by, way, uh, by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Which, if you really look at that last sentence, it's pretty interesting. There's no food, but we loathe the food we have. Again, if you, if you have that context of Israel's history, you know that after the exodus from Israel, they've gone through the Red Sea to get to the Promised Land. And they're now back where they started. To read that it, the Israelites are impatient, we as 21st century readers can go, oh, come on, guys. God's been so good to you. But I think we, as if we were there, would be equally impatient, uh, as probably shown in, in the day-to-day. Um, rush hour is difficult enough. Uh, but at this point, Israel's saying, God, you've provided this food for us. It's worthless. You're, if you have the NIV, it calls it miserable food but yet they're being cared for. And even though this is a difficult place for Israel to be, God has been abundantly faithful to them. So we see the Israelites have rebelled against a faithful God, and so God's uh, next step is to discipline. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents, or as some of your translations might say venomous serpents, uh, among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And for us reading this, we might think it's odd that they would rebel against God, who's been so good to them. He's led them, he's fed them, he's sustained them, given them so much. And as we continue to read, and if we look backwards, we know this is a pattern for Israel. It's a pattern for us too. But God has continuously shown grace so far, and he's going to continue to do so. Even yet, it would be completely fair for God to say, nope, story's over. This is... This is the judgment that you guys get. Story's over. End of the Bible. That's it right there. That would be completely just and completely fair. But God is merciful and God is gracious, so we continue. Verses 7 to 9, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. This is part of the pattern. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Once again, God was gracious to a rebellious nation. And this is the very story that's going to bring us back to John 3, so you can go ahead and flip back there. Uh, And it's the same story that Jesus is going to recall as he's talking with Nicodemus, a a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious and legal authority of the day. And so, as we turn there, we're going to find a man named Nicodemus. And like the Israelites who were in the wilderness, they failed to have faith in God's ability to sustain and to save his people— Nicodemus finds himself in a similar spot. He is unable to recognize God's ability and God's authority that Jesus is here acting with. Prior to this encounter, if we look back to John chapter 2, we see a pretty vague description, but we see Jesus has been doing many signs. We don't know what they are. They're just called many signs. It's very descriptive. But what we do know is that Nicodemus has witnessed them, and as a member of the Sanhedrin, he has many questions. 
So we get to John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Reminding ourselves that Nicodemus, he is this leader among Jews. He comes to Jesus in the cover of night. But why? Why does he come to Jesus at all? Does he even ask him a question? If you look at the statement, he just makes a statement. He's beating around the bush. He's trying to ask a question without asking a question. He's like a little nervous. He's like, maybe he'll just get what I'm trying to say. Like, you see, you see what I'm seeing? Can, you just, can I not have to say this out loud? Right? He's trying to beat around the bush here. It's kind of an awkward encounter for the two of them. Uh, but what is Nicodemus really asking? We know he's seen the signs, and he knows that Jesus, he said this, Jesus is either God or from God, or God is with him. And he's asking, how can you do this? How can you do these signs, Jesus? Is Jesus simply a man? Or is he something more? At the end of John 2, we see that John is beginning to hint to us, the audience, that Jesus might be something more. John 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus, on, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows what's in man, and he knows what's in Nicodemus. He knows what Nicodemus is really trying to get to. That's why Jesus answers the way he does. Nicodemus doesn't ask a question, and Jesus doesn't answer that question. (laughs) And so he's going to get to what Nicodemus is really looking for. And so uh, we pick up here uh, in John 3.3, and we we see this, this being the center. Nicodemus is looking to see what is Jesus made of. Is he, in fact, the real deal? And so John 3, 3 through 12, we read this. John, or Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answers him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? How can a man like Nicodemus lead the people of God if he can't understand an earthly thing here? And so Jesus has now told Nicodemus that there is a second birth, and and Nicodemus is standing there trying to reconcile how that is physically possible, which, spoiler alert, it's not. That's what he's kind of wrestling through. It's not going to happen. Jesus is talking about a spiritual rebirth. Uh, Some of your translations might say uh, born from above instead of uh, born again. And that's where we find the truth in that is there's a spiritual rebirth happening. And Jesus gives uh, Nicodemus a statement twice. And the first time Jesus says that Nicodemus is not going to see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, or understand these signs. 
uh, until he is born again or born from above. And the second time, Jesus says he won't enter the kingdom of God without being born again. And so what we see here is that Nicodemus is spiritually blind. He's not able to see what Jesus is teaching at this point. And this is really, really obvious to us in verse 9 where Jesus gives this explanation and Nicodemus just, with all of his questions he must have inside, all he can utter out is, how? How can this be? How can I be born of a spirit? And admittedly, if you're looking at the physical like Nicodemus is, it's, it's hard to understand because it's, Jesus is speaking of the spiritual rebirth. And so in the next section, we see that how, how we and how Nicodemus here can be born again and what that gets us. We have eternal life in heaven with God. So we pick up in John three thirteen through 18. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order, in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And if you're Nicodemus here, you've, you've been focused on God's law. That's, that's all you have up to this point. The law that they got at Sinai and has been developed throughout the Old Testament. And, and so Nicodemus here is earning this place in, in the kingdom of God here through his righteous acts, through his obedience to the law and uh, his participation in these forgiveness atonement sacrifices. And so Nicodemus is doing all of these things with the hope of being righteous enough to be in the kingdom of God. But Jesus has just laid out this roadmap to heaven, a roadmap to righteousness. And I'm sure that's causing some conflict in Nicodemus, and so I'm sure he has questions, but again, all he manages to utter out is, how? How can this be? As much as Nicodemus is unaware of what Jesus is explaining, there's a few things that as, uh, you know, early uh, turn of the millennium Jew, he he would be expected to understand, and then we can uh, reasonably assume he does understand. When we started out today, we started by following the Israelites in Numbers 21. We got the bronze serpent story. They wander, they wander, they wander, they rebel, they rebel. They keep going cycles like this. We wander, we rebel. And so eventually, God sends the snakes. People are dying, they have no hope. Who provides a mean for, means for new life? God does. He had Moses lift up, key word there, lift up a serpent. Place it where it could be seen. And everyone who looks at that serpent is healed. What's really sad about that story, and if you read through the books of Kings here, we find that the, the Israelites, instead of recognizing God's provision there, they actually kept the bronze serpent as a relic, and they worshipped the bronze serpent. Missing it right in front of them. That continued all the way through to Hezekiah, who is uh, one of the last kings before the exile of Israel. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years of worship of the bronze snake missing the point in Israel. And the snake, this is the means that God delivered, by which he delivered his people physically. It's meant to point forward to the spiritual deliverance of Israel and of God's people. 
And that's what Jesus is using here in John 3, 4. He's using it to illustrate what the Son of Man, what he must do. So what Jesus has taught Nicodemus and what he's teaching us here is, that, is to reimagine how we can be righteous. To reimagine how we can have eternal life with God. To reimagine how much God loves us. And the conclusion that Jesus brings Nicodemus to, which admittedly for Nicodemus doesn't make much sense to him at the time, is this. Eternal life in the kingdom is only available through the Son of God. This means for us that we can have eternal life in the kingdom of God if we believe in the Son of God and are born again. The ending of John's gospel tells us the point of John's gospel. And the point of John's gospel, which we're going to find, is to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, and he is the way to eternal life. John 20, 30 and 31 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And since Jesus is the Son of God, this is going to cause us to look outside of ourselves, outside of our own actions, to find life and to find righteousness. And for us, that means that we get to look to Jesus for eternal life. We're told here in John chapter 3 that if we trust and believe in Jesus, that we will have eternal life with God. And for some people, maybe in this room today, maybe you're looking at the world around you and you're seeing the chaos, the trouble, the turmoil. It never seems to end. Even as a saved Christian, it never seems to end. And you just want it to make sense and you want it to be okay. You want some hope for something better. I'm I'm here to tell you, and that's what Jesus is there to tell Nicodemus, that there is hope and that is only through the Son of God, Jesus. Jesus allows us, as saved human beings, to see the world as it is and to look forward to an eternity with him. In order for an eternity with God to have value, I think we need to also know where do we stand without God? Where do we stand if we don't have that eternity with God? Oddly enough, very convenient, Jesus actually goes there next. So we're going to go and follow the same path. Verses 18 to 21, I'm going to summarize for you. Jesus tells us this, that we have as human beings a predisposition to love the darkness, he calls it, in which uh, the translation there will mean to sin. We have a predisposition to sin. You've maybe heard that you have a sin nature. And Jesus says that without the Son of God, we stand condemned because of that sin nature. Why? Because our nature is to love the darkness. We read in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We also read in the book of Romans uh, that the wages of sin is death. We're all sinful by nature, but we, we also don't want our sin exposed. That doesn't feel good. It doesn't make us feel like we're on the right path here. Uh, and we think if we can hide our sin or put it under some guise or some ruse, or maybe if we can move the boundary of right and wrong, then that guilt's going to go away and, and we're not so bad. Sin isn't really in our lives that way. Sin, in fact, will regardless bring guilt into our lives, and and we're always going to look for ways to get out of that, to to absolve that guilt. And for most people, this looks like either moving the boundaries like I talked about, but more often attempts to do better or be better or make a bargain with God to, if I do this, then then if you give me this, then I'll obey you. But our, our, our most common attempt is to do or be better so that God will want to save us, so that we will have some inherent value to God. If we can make it so that God 
uh, desires us, then our guilt is no longer important in the picture. Uh, and so what's interesting here is that Jesus, in this passage, he doesn't make any mention of earning your salvation. He doesn't make any mention of earning eternal life. It's very simple. He says, believe. And he's speaking to Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews who is steeped in God's law. If, God, if Nicodemus can be obedient, then he'll be righteous. He'll be acceptable without guilt to God. And the Apostle Paul, who we know and love, he comes from the same background as Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, but he treat, teaches of a true salvation. If we were going to look at Galatians chapter 2, which we, we did in youth group last week, so uh, you'll be able to make some connections, guys. Uh, he teaches this. He teaches that uh, our attempts to do or to be better, to earn our salvation, is not able to save us in any capacity. Even following the law is not going to save us. It's not possible for us. We need something else. We need Christ. And so we'll jump around in Galatians 2, 15 to 20. It says this. We'll start in verse 15. We ourselves, it's Peter and Paul here, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Skip to verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And what Paul is bringing into a conclusion here is that, that Paul says that works, that the law our, our efforts to do better, to be better, be more holy, doesn't save us. They never did. Instead, it actually condemns us. The law, in its entirety, it shows our brokenness. It shows that we need a Savior. It shows that we need Jesus. It shows that we need something that says simply believe. The solution that Paul points to is faith in Christ alone. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching in John 3. In actuality, this is the hope that all of Scripture is pointing us back to or pointing us forward to. We've often got John 3.16 memorized, for God so loved the world, but do we often have John 3.17 memorized? I, I, I think usually not. It's also important. Put those two verses together, you get this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 16 gives us the gospel that Paul is preaching in Galatians, but verse 17 helps us understand this relationship between faith and Old Testament law, between what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus and the tradition that Nicodemus is coming from. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, is what John 3.17 says, and the question we have to ask is, well, why not? Realistically, that's what the world deserves at this point. That's what we deserved was an eternity in, in, in hell. Why not? The world already was condemned, is what uh, John 3.17 says. The law is what made that clear to us. Remember, all have fallen short. The wages for sin is death. And if Jesus didn't come to condemn the world like we may have thought he did, then why did he come? What did he come to do? He came in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus, or John continues in, in uh, verse 18 of chapter 3. He says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does, does not believe 
is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is the solution to the problem. Sin has separated us from God, and we have been striving to do better, to be better, to you fill in the blank. And no matter how hard we try, we are always going to fall short. And this is not just rooted in Scripture. It's rooted in our reality. It's rooted in our experience. We know this. We're always going to be searching or striving for something more until we rest and believe in God, His promises, and His grace that gives us peace. So this begs us two questions, and they're interrelated here. First one is this, do you recognize that you have a sin problem? And the second question is, are you ready to experience freedom from that sin problem? And maybe you're sitting here, uh, as many good Christians do, and you go, oh, I'm doing pretty good. I don't have a sin problem today. I didn't even, like, get angry when I read the news this morning. I, I didn't even, like, make any uh, obscure symbols at the person driving in front of me today. We're doing good. But if we take a second and we examine where we're really at, we know in the Old Testament we have 613 commandments in the law, and we, if we really look at where we're at, we take a, 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 a case study of each of our lives, we can ask these questions. When's the last time that we disrespected or disobeyed our parents? Or you disrespected your spouse? When's the last time you lied to somebody? When's the last time you looked lustfully at somebody who you shouldn't be looking at that way? When's the last time you were jealous or envious of something somebody else has? When's the last time you took the Lord's name in vain? What about idolatry? We live in a world that is steeped in idolatry, and it works its way even into us as Christians. Uh, Remember, there are 613 commandments, and I've listed out six or seven-ish Uh, of those right here. And I think even within those six and seven of those commandments, we can look at our lives and we can recognize that there is, in fact, a sin problem, no matter how much we want to portray this perfection because we we are these holy Christians, which we seek to be. But the reality is that we, we aren't. We struggle with sin. And so we need help. This is why we have to look at where do we stand without God? We stand guilty of sin and condemned, and so we need a solution. And so striving to do better is not going to help that, and so we need this solution. We need Jesus, and so we know the gospel is necessary. It's essential. And thankfully, it's not just necessary, but it's also relatively simple for what it is. God steps into our sin problem with a free, yes, you heard it, free, uh, and simple solution. Think back to this Old Testament story, right? We get, we get to uh, the bronze snake, and, and, and they're in the desert, and the Israelites have to do what in order to be saved? They just have to look at the serpent that Moses has put up on a stick. Pretty simple action. And we can look at that illustration, and we, we fully know the story of Jesus because we have the whole of Scripture, we have the whole even of the Gospel of John, and we can fault Nicodemus, we can try to, for not understanding what Jesus is teaching here. Uh, and, and, but here's the thing, is nowhere along the way does John really give us any other information about Nicodemus's faith. But it leads us to wonder, you have to wonder, if this man, steeped in the law, who hears this, this uh, passage directly from the mouth of Jesus, if he ever put the pieces together, if he ever understood this, when Jesus was scheduled to be crucified, to be lifted up, did he connect the dots? When Jesus is hung on the cross, he is straining for breath, Did Nicodemus connect the dots? I know often uh, as as modern Christians we have these these pieces of art that depict Jesus on the cross and for some reason they always look like he's at peace. Um, 
I don't think that that's probably the most accurate representation of crucifixion. It's pretty brutal. Um, and really what's happening is you're suffocating to death. And in order to breathe, you have to take these nails that are in your hands and you have to lift yourself up to struggle for breath. Nowhere in that is peace. <laughs> Jesus is up on, the, up on the cross. He's gasping for breath. He's in pain. Odds are he looks more like this bronze serpent that's twisted and coiled up on a, on a staff, a piece of wood that's up on a hill for people to see in Numbers 21 than he does like the peaceful pieces of art that we sing and hang in museums. And you have to wonder if, as Jesus is crucified, he's up there for everyone to see, to look to, to be saved. If Nicodemus remembered this conversation, if he's looking on and he says, whoa, the Son of Man is lifted up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You have to wonder if he put that together. The Israelites in the wilderness, they simply needed to look and be saved. The gospel is no different for us. We're supposed to look to Christ. We're supposed to trust that what he said is true. And we can trust in his death for our sins, his death in our place, in order to forgive our sins. It's through faith in him that we get to have eternal life. And through this, we can see that the gospel is both necessary but it's also simple and free. It's as simple as believing in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, as trusting in him for forgiveness of your sins. That's a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus took the burden of sin away from you. He took the burden of striving for perfection, to be holy enough. Uh, sometimes people feel like, they're, oh, I'm not holy enough to go to church. Uh, spoiler alert, that's kind of the thing. We, we strive for holiness, but no one is. We need Jesus. And so... He loves you just as you are. And once you commit to following Jesus, he's going to change your life. Can I get an amen? That's okay. We got that. Okay. He's going to change your life. He's going to not just change your life. He's going to change your motivations. And through that, he's going to change your actions. If we think we have to change our actions in order to be able to be saved, then we're still stuck in the Old Testament law like Nicodemus. Instead, it is through that faith that God's going to give this gospel transformation, spiritual rebirth within us that's going to bring us to the point where we can be children of God as he has made us to be. So this leads all of us to the question, do we believe? And if you do, then that's, there's some good news because that's the way to eternal life in the kingdom of God. If we believe and if we're born again. We know that to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, it is both necessary and it is simple. I've mentioned before, and maybe it's been a while, so I'll mention it again. I used to work at a Christian summer camp, and so because it's a Christian summer camp, one of the things you do is you try to illustrate the gospel through some of these activities, and probably the most clear one is this. It's called the maze. That's it, just the maze. And it's part of the outdoor adventure route, and so you're wandering through the woods with, I don't know, 15 kids, and um, they could be high schoolers, they could be fifth graders, it just depends on the week. And they're wandering through the woods, and they enter a maze, and in order for the maze to work, they, they put on a blindfold for the kids, because otherwise they just can see how it works, and then the whole point is missed. So they put a blindfold on, and the maze works like this. You're in the woods, there's trees everywhere, and they've tied string to these different trees to make the maze. And so the maze has, uh, sometimes these strings will crisscross, but ultimately these strings all work together to create one coherent 
maze, and you have to, as you go through the maze, you have your blindfold on, you have to have one hand on the string to get progress. And so what they do is they, they say, all right, you get your blindfold on, we put you on the string, go. And, and you know, any teenager will do this, they race to the finish. They race. And what happens is, as this kind of goes on for a while, you start to see this. If the, if the maze becomes too difficult, we've told them, all you have to do is raise your hand, and we're going to come show you the exit. And so you see this initial race, and they're bumping into each other, trying not to smack their head on a tree. And what you start to see is, one by one, the hands go up. The maze is too difficult. And eventually, there's only one kid left. And sometimes they wander for a half hour, 45 minutes. <laughs> sometimes it's only five minutes. As a counselor, we prayed for five minutes. Um, but what, the, what happens is after you raise your hand, we take off your blindfold, and you see what's actually happening in front of you. There's no exit to the maze. <laughs> they can't get out. The only way they can get out of the maze is to raise their hand and say, I need help. And then they get taken right out of the maze. And the gospel illustration, I think, is pretty clear here. The gospel works in the same way without Jesus' help, without us raising our hands and saying, yeah, that guy, I need his help. Without Jesus, we would be stuck wandering, blindfolded in the darkness. But as soon as we ask for that help, he is ready, he is able to save us. So I ask again, are you ready to experience freedom? Are you ready to trust in Jesus to save you? Once you trust in Jesus, everything changes. He's going to change your heart. He's going to change your motivations. He's going to change your desires. And for many of us, this is something we've already done but we also often find ourselves still struggling like Nicodemus to prove ourselves to God. And if that's you, you can rest in the grace of the gospel. But regardless of, of where we're at, we can recognize that there is so much to be thankful for in the gospel message. And so we get to stand together today, we get to respond to God with hearts of joy, with hearts of thankfulness. I want to leave you with this quote. It's a Charles Spurgeon quote, which I learned recently. He's, he's actually been dead for quite a while. I thought he was pretty recent. He's, he's I guess not. Uh, he says this, Justification by faith does not make us think lightly of sin. On the contrary, it creates in us such love to God that we loathe the very idea of offending him. For the tendency of the gospel of grace is to excite gratitude in those who receive it. If I am freely pardoned, then I must love him who has generously forgiven me. Ge- gratitude is the, root ver- is, the true, is the root of the true virtue and the mainspring of all holiness. And so as we get to respond in thankfulness and joy, we get to, uh, to realize that our actions, our obedience to God does not save us, but those are things that we, by which we can express thankfulness and joy to God who has generously saved us. So with that, I'm going to invite you guys to go ahead and stand with me. We're going to pray, and then we're going to respond to God together through a time of praise. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your words. We're thankful for Nicodemus, uh, for him coming to Jesus so that we can have this written down, recorded. Uh, We're thankful for the Apostle John and, and that you had your spirit work through him to give us this word from your son. God, we're thankful for what was to come at the end of the gospel. God, that you sent your son to live a perfect life, to die in our place so that we can freely have eternal life with you in heaven, made right through the blood and the work of Jesus. God, I pray for our hearts that if that's something that we have not responded to, God, that we have not uh, committed to following Jesus, that we're still looking for uh, approval, that we're still looking for uh, something to, to make everything make sense, God, I pray that you would just bring us to you. 
God, if, if we're here and we have professed that we love you, but we're still trying to earn your love, God, I pray that you would just break that down in our heart and you would bring us right back to you. God, it's with thankfulness, it's with joy that we come before you now to praise your holy name. Amen.